Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. And this is uh, going to be an interesting study because um, I don't know if you've ever gone quite in-depth, but we're going to do an overview. I've entitled the message, The Seven Epistles of Christ Jesus. The Seven Epistles of Christ Jesus. I'm going to try not to move too much, and that way the, uh, the mic won't do that weird thing. But as we begin today, would you stand to your feet once again? We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read through verses 1 through 20. Revelation 1 verses 4 through 20. And... Uh, We will begin there. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. This is the word of God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to God the Father. To Him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha. And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest, with a golden sash, and his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in all its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you pray? Lord Jesus, we ask that as we look to Your Word once again, that You would open our eyes and ears, that we would hear the truth of Your Word today, and that, Lord, our lives would be, would be brought into submission to the truth of Your Word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are uh, going to allow this passage of Scripture to be our introduction today, kind of the, the foundation that we're laying, and we're going to build upon that. And we're going to do an overview, as I said, of the seven epistles of Christ Jesus uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So you can actually turn to chapters 2 and 3, keep your fingers there, because we will be in those chapters today. Uh, and perhaps one of the most basic misunderstandings regarding how we interpret Scripture is how we first uh, approach Scripture, when we open the Bible itself, how we read the books. Because we cannot read the Old Testament, for example, the exact same way as we read the New Testament. N neither can we read every single book of the New Testament in the exact same way. There's what is known as progressive revelation regarding the timing of how God the Father has revealed his truth to mankind, meaning this, God has revealed Himself and His plan to a limited extent throughout the whole of human history. So a little at a time over the whole of human history. And as time has gone on, obviously He has revealed more and more of this divine truth. And this divine truth we often refer to as the canon of Scripture. Well, eventually the canon of the Old Testament Scripture was closed. So there was a point in time in which it began and a point in time in which it ended, and then that was closed, and then Jesus referred back to that Old Testament canon of Scripture, and it was understood by He and the disciples and all Jews in that day. There was no new revelation added to the Old Testament canon that there had to be a new revelation eventually uh, that we'll get to in just a moment. But the canon of the Old Testament was closed and Jesus referred often to that body of Scripture, often in His own earthly ministry. Remember in John 17, before, right before Christ was crucified, He prayed this prayer. And I love this prayer. What an incredible prayer. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So He tells us how we are to be sanctified and the mechanism by which we are sanctified, that we need sanctification and that it's His Word that sanctifies us. All right. Then we see on, obviously He was talking about the Old Testament Scriptures at that time. When we read about Christ on the road to Emmaus, Jesus spoke to those two travelers and it says this, quote, Then beginning with Moses... And then with all the prophets, Jesus Himself interpreted to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Well, which Scriptures was He interpreting to them and revealing Himself in? It says all the Scriptures. Well, obviously it's all the Scriptures that they had at their uh, disposal for that day, which is the Old Testament canon. In fact, Jesus never quoted from the New Testament 
because the New Testament didn't exist then. Do you all all understand that? Say amen if you got that. Okay. But um, his spoken words, we know, became a large portion of the New Testament. In addition, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit, and this is key, that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal new information to them as well. So not just the things that Christ was speaking to His disciples, but the Holy Spirit was going to come, an advocate for them, and the Holy Spirit would be able to give them divine revelation that Christ then would want them to write down, just as we saw in our passage of Scripture, how John was told to write down everything that he saw and heard. But in this particular case, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to stay with you, I'm leaving, the Holy Spirit's coming, and He is going to give you these things. So just as the Old Testament canon was closed, and that would be what Christ referred to as divine truth from God to man, the New Testament canon, we have to understand, would be closed in the very same way. God, through the hands of His own specifically chosen men, would deliver His holy, precise Word to His bride, to the church. So we need to understand then, as we open the closed canon of the Old Testament and the closed canon of the New Testament, how to apply Scripture. We need to know how to properly divide Scripture. Remember, Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the Word of Truth in an accurate manner. And this, of course, is our job as well. We cannot be willy-nilly with the divine Word of God. We must get it right. And one of the most basic things that we have to understand is this. There is what is called historical narrative, meaning there are passages of Scripture that are a historical account of what took place. All right? When we read the Old Testament, we're reading all about what took place in a historical period of time in the past. And these are descriptive. They describe what was going on. They describe what in the New Testament, in case of the New Testament, they describe what Jesus often specifically told His own disciples. And these things do not always apply directly to you and I. Let me give you a very quick example. Jesus told His disciples to go out two by two, house to house, take nothing for your journey, speak only to the Jews. Now obviously He wasn't speaking to you and I, was He? He was giving specific revelation, specific instruction to His disciples. In another one of these descriptive passages, where Jesus was telling His disciples something specific that would happen to them and not to us, Christ described how the Holy Spirit would reveal the New Testament to them, to His chosen disciples, after He departed and after He had ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. So if you would, quickly, turn to the book of John chapter 14. We're, we're going to look at verse 26. John 14, verse 26. You can take notes if you don't want to turn there and you can look later. But again, John 14, 26. We are going to look at chapters 15 and 16 as well very quickly. But I'm going to read this to you. So, John 14, 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. How many times have you quoted that? How many times have I quoted that and said, well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit says that the Holy Spirit's going to bring to remembrance all things that Christ has taught us. Well, there's a very basic general understanding that yes, the Holy Spirit is our advocate, but Christ was speaking specifically to His disciples about the divine revelation and the Holy Spirit's job in this. In other words, Christ is saying, after I go, guys, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to remind you of everything that I have already said to you, primarily concerning myself in the Old Testament. So if you want to know how I fit into and fulfill all the passages in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you the same clarifying knowledge that I have right now. Does everybody understand that? Say amen. Nod your head. All right. So then uh, we want to turn to John 15, 26. John 15, 26. We're going to look at 26 and 27. John 15, 26 and 27. When the Advocate comes, so he's giving them this knowledge. He's building upon this prior knowledge from chapter 14. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness now about me. And you will bear witness also. So he's going to tell you everything about me, and then you're going to bear witness about me also. Because, he says, you have been with me from the beginning. So to clarify, in other words, after I go, the Holy Spirit will come and not only remind you of everything I've already said, but He will remind you of your time with me and your time as we have traveled together and all of the different accounts in my ministry that later you will write down and record, all right, from the very beginning. Now uh, move over to John 16, verse 7. John 16, 7, and then we're going to look through 12 through 15. He says again, reiterates, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now skip down to 12. Uh, that passage there, I'm not skipping it on purpose. I did a sermon about it last 4th of July. You can go back and watch that if you want to. Uh, John 16, 12. He, Jesus says to His disciples, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. So He's saying, I'd like to tell you everything that I need to tell you right now while I'm here with you, but you can't handle it. All right? You're not, you're not ready. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. John 16, 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So see how He's building from what He said before? He will not speak for Himself or from Himself, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So He adds to it, again, even more truth to what He's already said. So... Verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. They're one, remember? The Son and the Father. Therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit is taking the knowledge that Christ would have shared had Christ stuck around with His disciples 
and he's, he's telling them all the things, how Christ fits in the Old Testament, and so on and so forth. So let me just bullet point this for you. In other words, fellas, after I go, the Holy Spirit's coming. I want to tell you uh, everything that you need to know right now, but in, in the best Jack Nicholson voice that I can think of, you can't handle the truth, okay? And when he comes, he will remind you of everything I have said concerning how I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. He will also remind you of your time with me so that you will give a perfect account of your time with me in my ministry from the very beginning. He will also tell you things that are yet to come, the things that are ahead that have not been revealed to you. He will not only speak of himself, he will not glorify himself. This is important to understand for all of those who are tempted to make such a huge deal out of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to point his church to Christ. So it's not about the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit pointing us to the glory of Christ. He, these are Jesus' words and he's being very clear. He will always point to Christ. Now, if we were to break these things down into very logical and specific categories. Jesus in these accounts is prophesying uh, to his disciples, futuristic prophesy, uh, prophecy, that the Spirit would give them divine information in three areas. The things that were, that already happened, the things that are, so the things that are happening right now, and the things that are to come. You see how that breaks down? Pretty simple. Past, present, future. He's going to give you divine revelation about the past, about the present, and about the future. So one, that historical narrative. The things which have already happened in regard to his fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. What do we know that as? Genesis, first Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament, all of that, and the beginning of what we call the New Testament because what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is is Christ fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies that were not all of them, but men, most of them. He's got many to fulfill upon His second coming. But He came and fulfilled many of those things. And again, that's Genesis through the book of John. So the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels are actually an exclamation point on the end of the Old Testament rather than the beginning of the New Testament, if we were to categorize it in a way that helps us understand progressive revelation. So things didn't change until Christ was died, buried, and resurrected and ascended. Does, does everybody understand that? And then you have historical narrative at the very beginning of the New Testament period, which were the things that were happening to them in regard to the birth of Christ's church. And it began the end days at Pentecost. And we know of this account, this historical narrative. We read about it in the book of Acts. And that's what that's all about. That first century of the apostolic age. All right. And then third, we have what I'm going to call the prescriptive epistles. When I say prescriptive, think of a, a prescription. When you go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes you something... You go and get it, you take it home, you take it in a regimented manner, right? In a specific way. Well, these uh, prescriptive epistles are letters that were written, divinely inspired, letters that were written to Christ's church involving things that all of us must know in order to conduct ourselves 
in the way that Christ desires His bride to behave in the world today? What is His mission for us until His return? And of course, we have what is known as the Pauline letters. These are the Pauline epistles. You've got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. For those of you guys who forget that, it's girls eat peas and carrots. Okay, that's how you remember the order that it goes in. Uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. God revealed so much to the Apostle Paul. And then there are seven other epistles. You've got James. You've got 1st and 2nd Peter. You've got 1st, got 2nd, and 3rd John. And then you've got Jude. And then the promise of, those are the epistles, then the promise of Him revealing to them the things that were yet to come. Now, all of those epistles have sections within them that are talking about the second coming. They are prophetic in nature. But the final book is a book of prophecy, uh, and this is what the church can expect as we look ahead into the future when Christ returns and ushers in a new eternal reality, and we know this as the revelation. Not revelations, the revelation, okay? It is the last revelation of Jesus Christ as we learn when He will be revealed. So let me see if I can bullet point this for you. Basically, what I've just described to you is the whole of Scripture, all of canon, uh, divinely inspired truth, the Word of God, authored by the Holy Spirit and given to God's people. Remember that the Word of God was not given by, interpreted, or sourced from any man. Man did not write Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, and the Bible gives this description of how the Holy Spirit, as if these men were ships with sails and no wind to go anywhere, and the Holy Spirit blew, and the breath of God filled the sails with this divine inspiration, and they began to write the truth of God's Word, all in their own personality types, using their own grammar, using their own uh, forms of language and such. So the essence of these men are found within the divinely inspired truth, and that's an incredible thing. But the, this scripture speaks of all Christ fulfilled in the Old Testament during His earthly ministries, known as the Gospels, and the birth of His church and historical account of it, for, as I said, for the first century. We know that is Acts. Speaking of all the things His church, the body, needs in order to live a life of godliness, everything that we need to be pleasing to the Father and live in the power of the Holy Spirit can be found in the instruction for the church, in the epistles, in the letters of Paul and the other apostles, and then speaking of all the things this church needs to know regarding their expectations and their blessed hope in the future, and that we know as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Peter called Scripture in its entirety the more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? More sure than any potential experience that you could have. Because the Bible tells us even if an angel of light comes to you and gives you a message, you should reject it because the faith has been delivered. The faith has been given. We have the more sure word of prophecy. We can hold it in our hands. We can study it. 
We don't have to guess or wonder whether or not it was the voice of God or whether it wasn't. We know when we crack open the pages of Scripture, it is the voice of Almighty God. Amen? Jude referred to completed Scripture as the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So this book of Revelation is the primary prophetic section of the New Testament Scripture that the Holy Spirit revealed to the Apostle John. And in chapter 1, as we discussed in depth last month, it begins with John's incredible vision of the resurrected Christ. He is described in detail, as we read earlier, in all His glory in heaven. And then Christ dictates to John to whom to write seven new epistles, seven new letters to His bride. Specifically, seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And Jesus is working and moving in the midst of these seven churches we find in the passage. However, John is told to write, he's told by Jesus to write the things that should sound very familiar to you guys already given that we've already exposed the mechanism that the Holy Spirit uses. Verse 19, if you'll look there in verse 19 with me, I believe it's chapter chapter 2, is it chapter 1, 19? Anybody yell that out to me? Yes, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are the things which will take place after these things. So again, the things that happen, the things that are happening, and the things that will happen. Everybody understand that? And it, it sounds awfully similar to the same thing that we just read in John 16 when Christ said the Holy Spirit would come. He would bring all things to your remembrance, the things of the past. He would tell you about the present, and He would reveal to you the future. And in this case, Christ Himself, Jesus Christ Himself is dictating the letters, but simultaneously, because they are one, the Bible tells us that the Spirit is also saying the exact same things that Christ is saying as well. The things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And in these first three chapters of Revelation, we see the things which were in John's day to those modern churches or those churches in his own day the things which were we also see the things which are in our day as we are still in the midst of the church age and Christ is still in the midst of those lampstands he's still working and acting and moving on behalf of his church it continues even today and then in chapter 4 verse 1 we see a change take place just flip over to chapter 4 Verses 1 through 2 there. I want to fast forward just for a moment and show you when the scene changes, okay? Revelation 4.1. And so we're at the things now which will take place after these things. The things which were, the things which are, and the things which will take place. What's going to happen after these things? Here we go. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now here we have this scene unfold of John hearing a loud commanding voice saying, Come up here, and we read of John's being caught up 
Harpazo, he was raptured, if you will, in that moment, and he was caught up to heaven. And I believe that this is a picture of the rapture of the church. Why would I say that? Well, it's not written in stone, but let me just throw this out to you. After the things which were and the things which are, from this moment on, that when John is caught up into heaven, we never hear the church mentioned again in the entirety of the book of Revelation. After that moment where John is caught up, you never hear the church itself mentioned as they are in the letters to the churches. So with that scene change in mind, let us rewind back to the new epistles, that these seven new letters to be taken to these seven churches and distributed to his entire church. I want to show you uh, that Christ makes it crystal clear that he's the one giving the message to each and every one of these churches. How do I know this? Because he refers back each and every time to the vision of himself that John had already described in Scripture, or he refers to another passage of Scripture somewhere else in harmonizing Scripture that describes him specifically. So, to Ephesus he says, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, uh, and that's how Christ is described in John's vision in Revelation 1, 11 through 12, and in chapter 16, or verse 16. To Smyrna, he says, this is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says, which is how Christ is described in John's vision, Revelation 1, 17 through 18, Revelation 22, as well as Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 48. By the way, I will post these notes on Facebook for those of you guys who want to go refer to them later since I'm rolling through them fairly quickly. To Pergamum, he says, this is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says. You see how he's referring to himself and everyone? This is how Christ is described in John's vision in Revelation 1.16, also in Revelation 2.16. To Thyatira, he says, This is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says, which is how Christ is described in John's vision in Revelation 1.14 and 15. You see the pattern here, all right? To Sardis, this is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, which is John's uh, describes John's vision in Revelation 1.4 and 1.14 and 1.16. To Philadelphia, he says, this is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens a door and no one will shut, who shuts a door and no one will open, says. And this is how Christ is described in Revelation 6.10 in Revelation 19.11, and in Isaiah 22.22. So he's all the time referring back to himself in the whole of Scripture. And finally, the seventh letter to Laodicea, he says, this is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says, which is how Christ is described in 2 Corinthians 1.20, Revelation 1.5, Revelation 3.7, John 1.3, Colossians 1.18, Revelation 21.6, Revelation 22.13, all of these describe Him in that way. Do you see how Scripture harmonizes with other Scriptures to keep the, uh, building and laying foundations, uh, the foundation of, of building blocks upon precepts and precepts? Do you understand? We are building by harmonizing Scripture. And because we do that, we don't just grab a proof text 
and make it say whatever we want. We get what we know from Scripture because it says it in various places, and we can know that we know that we know. So as you can see with just a simple cross-reference, Jesus is actually exhausting the description of Himself with the other passages of Scripture, leaving no doubt that these letters are from Him. Okay, That is an incredible thought that Christ is writing these letters. So if Jesus is writing the letters to these churches who were, and they still apply to the modern-day church, the churches that are, then we should pay close attention to both the commendations in each and every one of these letters as well as the admonitions, the warnings, uh, about the behavior of each of these churches described in these letters, in these epistles uh, of Christ Jesus. Because there are consequences attached to each. I want to list some basic but important facts that we need to note about each and every one of these letters written to the church. So you can take notes if you want. If not, you can listen. And again, I'll post the notes later. In each letter, we find that he opens with a description of himself, as we covered, and he closes each letter with the words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Believers are to listen to what the Spirit says to all seven churches. You don't just got, uh, get to say, well, that's a cruddy church. I'm not gonna, that doesn't apply to me. It, it probably does apply to you in some form or fashion. That's the beautiful thing about these letters. It applies to every single church to some degree. It applies to every single person within the body of Christ to some degree. In all seven letters, Jesus expresses complete awareness of the condition of each and every one of the seven churches, whether they are good or whether they are lacking. He says to each, I know, and this is a statement, I know is a statement of His omniscience, that nothing is hidden from those eyes of blazing fire. Nothing is hidden from His omniscient, penetrating gaze. Revelation 22 uh, 2.23 says, Jesus searches mind and heart, and He says, I will give to each of you according to your own works. Not only each and every church, but each and every one of you will be rewarded according to your own work. And remember, Jesus walks in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. He's right in the middle of the church's business even today. He knows His church intimately, and His hand is always at work within His true church. Well, how do these letters break down then? Well, very similarly as we compare them, uh, I want to draw out some of these obvious comparisons. So we're going to begin uh, with, or we're going to start with each and every one of these churches and go through each one quickly. But first, we, we're going to see positive qualities. To five of the seven letters to the churches, Jesus knows recognizes and reinforces qualities or conditions that Christ has judged as a good thing, and He sees them as victorious or overcomers or conquerors. And that's going to be a theme that we will see in regards to His churches. Now, two of the seven churches, Sardis and Laodicea, receive no positive reinforcement from Christ at all whatsoever. Not a good group to be listed in. The second thing we'll see is reproof, okay, or rebuke. Jesus is saying, here are the areas in which you've gone astray. Some of these things I even hate. He uses the word hate 
And then following that rebuke or reproof, number three is there is usually discipline or, if not heeded, deadly consequences in five of the seven churches. So what will be his discipline for non-repentant churches? Revelation 3.19, he says this. You've all heard this quoted. Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So if you're finding yourself reproved or rebuked by the truth of Scripture, the appropriate response is not to push back on said Scripture. The appropriate response for you and I is to be zealous to get on the ball, if you will, and repent very, very quickly. In Revelation 2.23, Jesus states the purpose of the deadly consequences for non-repentance. Here's how He states it. That there are consequences, some of them will be deadly within the church. He says, and because of this, all the other churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So again, I know what's going on. You can't fool me. And I'm going to repay every single one of you for what you deserve. And so therefore, some churches are going to face deadly consequences so that you'll get on the ball and realize, I'm serious. Can I get an amen on that? Everybody understand. So to five of the seven churches, Jesus again provides these deadly consequences for not zealously repenting in light of His loving reproof and discipline, right? Because again, nothing's hidden from His omniscient, all-knowing gaze. Now, here's something that people love to say these days, that Jesus is love. Jesus is love. This is a great big fuzzy teddy bear in the sky, right? That's, that's what it's all about. Well, He says in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I chastise, I, repro I reprove, I discipline, I rebuke. So if you feel the rebuke, fall in line. His rebuke is an act of His love. Do not allow the world to define what love is for the body of Christ. This is the New Testament Christ we're talking about here. People want to cut Jesus in, in half or God in half and say, well, the Old Testament God was one of wrath and Jesus is one of love. Read Revelation. Christ is one of love and He brings His wrath in His hands and He stomps upon the grapes of His wrath. He, he destroys the wicked until the blood soaks in the garment, the hem of His, of his uh, pure white garment. His wrath is just a loving act as much as a loving act that we would see from Him. The fourth thing He talks about is their works. Five of the seven churches receive negative uh, comments about their works, and then two positive, uh, the two churches get positive. Um, he mentions works 11 times to five of the seven churches. Um, Revelation goes on to mention works an additional eight times, and it's obvious, folks, that our works are the fruit. This is so important to understand. Your works are the fruit of your salvation. They are not the root of your salvation. Your works are what is manifested because you love Him, because you are in Him, and because out of that love you want to serve Him, you do these works for Him, okay? You do not do works in order to prove or to be saved, okay? Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for us beforehand, so that you and I would walk in them. 
James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So always works accompanies the true believer. James 2.26 also says, Faith apart from works is dead. James 2.2 says, The faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Again, the works are the fruit, the manifestation of someone who is truly in Christ. And... Uh, in Acts 26.20, 20, we see that it says, quote, They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So sometimes you begin to work for the Lord because it's in keeping with the fact that you've just had a come-to-Jesus moment and, uh, and He's rebuked you, you and you've repented. And now, out of love and thankfulness that, he, that you've been rebuked and corrected and are now walking the narrow way, now you want to serve your Lord and Savior. The fifth thing is the call to hear and overcome. Uh, first, Jesus concludes all seven letters, as I said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we learn from a sermon that even uh, Colton preached that this is important, an important phrase in the parable of the sower because seeing, hearing, remembering, perceiving, and understanding God's Word is all equated with producing fruit, and again, that fruit is the evidence of true salvation. If someone's not bearing fruit, then it's doubtful that they ever had a true conversion experience in the first place. And then the second thing, Jesus says to all seven churches, to the one who overcomes. So there are expected to be overcomers in every single church. So that word overcome, conquer, to be victorious, to the one who overcomes, it's mentioned over and over and over again to the seven churches. Eight times in the visions following these letters, Jesus' stated goal of all seven letters to the seven churches, again, is that there would be overcomers. There would be those who conquer or gain the victory. So the word overcome is used 24 times, conquer two times, prevail one time, and to get the victory one time. And of course, this isn't victory on your own. This is always victory through Christ. It's Christ conquering. He carried off the victory. He came victorious, uh, victorious over all His foes. And for Christians who are in the vine, for Christians who are in Christ, they hold fast to their faith in Christ even unto death even if it means we lay down our life for the cause of Christ or against the power of our foes, those who would persecute us and, and, and cause us to suffer, and in the very midst of our sinful temptations in this world and the persecutions that we may receive. So we overcome those things because we are in Christ. John 16.33 says, But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. We are in Him, and we should take heart and have peace because if He overcame and we are in Him, then we too are overcomers. It is an eternal hope that gives us power to live with daily perseverance. So the seven letters to the seven churches serve as this, for me, the idiot's guide or instruction book for believers in the body of Christ. How is it that you and I can overcome, conquer, and be victorious how is it that we would remain in Christ? Well, believers must follow all instructions given to all seven churches in order to overcome. 
And again, according to Jesus, according to Jesus, not in and of your own devices, not of your own, uh, your own works, not of your own uh, striving to try to prove yourself to God, but you must rest in Him. Just You don't walk out by a tree, a fruit tree, an apple tree, and you walk by and it's going... and it's trying to grow an apple. That's not how it works. Its roots are firmly planted in the soil. It has nutrients and water, and the tree just simply rests and exists, and the wind blows, and this apple... And it just appears. And then many apples appear. And trees do not strive to produce fruit. Neither do you and I. If we are planted in Christ, the fruit comes naturally. Amen? We rest in Him. Amen. That's good. Uh, I'm not saying amen to me. Okay, I, I'm saying amen to the Word of God. I'm telling you. It's, it's good stuff. <laughs> so, as this is described, uh, true hearing, seeing, perceiving, and understanding... The, the, it's, it's described as small. It's described as secret, this knowledge. It's, descri- it's described as hidden, right? That Finding that tiny, hard-to-find gate and walking that very tiny, narrow way that leads to life when everyone else is wa- walking the broad way to destruction. Once again, this is so very important to understand that we are in Christ. It's all on Him. Uh, remember what we learned, our salvation, the salvation of our spirit in our, in our uh, justification, our soul in our sanctification, and our body in glorification all rests upon His shoulders. But we also need to understand that 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, If we are in Him, it says, to examine yourselves to be certain that you are in fact in the faith. There's nothing wrong with examining yourself, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. And then, of course, number six, he talks about the rewards of each faithful church. So Jesus concludes all seven letters to the churches with a reward for those who overcome and conquer. And remember what I said and taught on a few weeks back, that there is the visible church, those who all wear the badge of Christianity, but within the church, those visible church People are His true church, the remnant, the true followers of Christ. And only Christ knows which one are wheat and tares, which one are goats, and which one are sheep. So let's begin. Quickly, we're going to run through the seven churches. We're going to talk about first, if you'll turn to the book, uh, uh, talking about the letter to Ephesus. The positive qualities for Ephesus, Revelation 2, 2 through 3, and 6. Uh, He talks about their works, your toil, your patient endurance, you cannot bear those who are evil. You test the false apostles. You endure patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, not growing weary. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which are those who uh, were led astray and they deceived uh, others into worldly thinking or indulging in worldly practices. These Nicolaitans who are following the lusts and desires of the world, uh, a gentleman by the name of Clement of Alexandria said, quote, of the Nicolaitans, he says, quote, they abandon themselves to pleasures like goats, leading a life of unrestrained self-indulgence. We don't want to be like the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, I hate the work and the acts of the Nicolaitans. What reproof did he give Ephesus? Revelation 2, 4 through 5, 
He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What is the discipline or the deadly consequence? He says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. You will no longer be a church. The glory of the Lord will depart. I will remove every bit. You can have the banners, the lights, the show, all of that. And the glory of the Lord of the living God cannot have anything to do with what's going on inside that church. Most of all, if the, if the truth of God's word is not proclaimed weekly. Then his uh, works, he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Again, um, he wants them to return. And then, of course, to hear and overcome to those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And I want to just make this statement, and, and I'm not going to repeat it every time, but every church is held responsible, every church will be held to account, and every church has the opportunity to repent. There's always hope for each and every one of these churches. Okay, and so what is their reward? What is their hope? In Revelation 2.7, he says, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this eternal understanding of the fact that when we get to eternity, I will grant to you the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. Perfect uh, sustainability in eternity. Now, the church at Smyrna, positive qualities, tribulation. Uh, you, are, you have poverty, yet you are rich. There, it's, it's all positive uh, comments. No reproof, discipline, or call to repentance for the church of Smyrna. Um, you know, what's interesting about the, this, this church, the, the persecuted church, the, the church who is crushed, their name comes from the word myrrh. And in order to get the essence of myrrh, you actually have to crush myrrh and the fragrance comes out. And that is the picture that we're seeing at the church of Smyrna. They are so crushed and so persecuted, there is no reproof. It is all positive. There are no uh, deadly consequences or, di or discipline. Their works are that they endured tribulation, poverty, persecution, blasphemy against them from false Jews, and they endured suffering. And then, of course, the call to hear and overcome. They're responsible. They have an opportunity to repent, but of course they don't have to. And their reward, he says, they will not be hurt by the second death. So many of them were persecuted and murdered. They were martyred for their own faith. But Jesus is saying, your hope is eternal. Your hope springs forth eternal. You don't have to fear those who can kill the body. You can only put your faith and trust in the risen King because your eternity lies with Him. And the second death we know later on in Revelation is being cast into the lake of, of fire, the place of eternal uh, torment. And then the church at Pergamon, positive qualities. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, You held fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, meaning great times of, of, of trial and tribulation and persecution. The reproof for this church at Pergamon was the teaching of Balaam, which is being led astray or deceived, so falling uh, for false teaching, okay? This, you guys know I'm a big stickler about keeping our eyes open about false teaching. Um, what did we learn this morning about Paul's letter to F, or his in Acts about the passage that Jared read? He says, For three years, day and night with tears, I begged you to be careful that grievous wolves were going to come in among you. When we get to the letter of Ephesians, uh, the letter to Ephesians in Revelation, 
That's one of the commendations. You did it. Congratulations. You did not allow these false apostles to come in and take root in the church. So we saw that Paul preached to them that thing, and we see the result in this letter. It's a beautiful thing. Again, how Christ's word unfolds before our very eyes. Um, the reproof, again, being led astray, food sacri- eating food sacrificed to idols, practicing sexual immorality, and of course he says you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which has a lot to do with the sexual immorality. The discipline and deadly consequences, he says, I, Christ, will war against you with the sword of my mouth. When Jesus says, I'm going to war against you, that's not a good thing, okay? He says, I'm going to war against you with the sword of my mouth. How many enemies does Jesus have? Zero. There's no such thing because he just obliterates people who would be uh, self-righteous enough to think that they are his enemy. What were the works mentioned? They endured the influence of a satanic culture. Why? It actually says because perhaps it was the literal place where Satan dwelled at that very time on the earth. They did not deny faith even in great trial and martyrdom. So even though they were uh, failing in some areas, in other areas they were doing well. And then of course the call to hear and overcome. And then he says in their reward, I will give some of hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. We're going to study all of this, so if it sounds a little mysterious, that's a good thing. Uh, On the stone is going to have a new name written on it that that, um, no one knows except the one who receives it. So you and Christ are going to have your own little secrets, okay, that are between intimacy between you and, and him, and that's what he's saying to this church. The church at Thyatira, positive qualities, works, love, faith, service, patience, endurance. Later works exceed those of first. So there's this progression in the way that you work and serve the Lord. What is their reproof? Well, you've tolerated Jezebel. Well, what does that mean? What is this whole spirit of Jezebel that we hear uh, so many people talking about? Well, it's not always what these people are talking about. It tells us what it is if we study Scripture The spirit of Jezebel is a disregard. It's rampant, by the way, in our society. It is a disregard for God's created order within creation and within the family and within the body of Christ. Okay? So, practicing sexual immorality, uh, homosexuality for for one thing, uh, all of those things. uh, And then it mentions that they learn these deep things of Satan, that there's actually... uh, perhaps even veiled Satanism within their ranks. What are, the, what are the disciplines or deadly consequences? Now look at the result. Look at the result here. And, and this is what I was talking about when you, when you consider the New Testament Christ. He's, he's not all uh, hugs and giggles, okay? When, when you set yourself up against an almighty righteous king, Revelation 2, 20 through 23, I will throw her onto a sickbed, I will throw her into great tribulation. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give according to each of their works. A sick bed and, and, and dying children. This is a generational type curse because someone departed from the truth and because you have departed from the, tr- uh, the truth, then your children grow up ignorant of the truth. And they then are apart from Christ and will face the full consequences of being apart from Christ 
on the day of judgment. It's not a pretty thing, right? The works that are mentioned in Thyatira, they had a few good things. Your latter works exceed the first. I will give each according to your work. I will reward you for keeping Jesus' works until the end. So there's the idea of perseverance. Then their reward, we're almost done, so hang with me. I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken to pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He's saying that during the millennial reign, when Christ is actually reigning upon the earth, He's going to rule over the nations, and if you are a conqueror, you will take part in that ruling and reigning with Christ over the nations. Okay. Now, the church at Sardis, uh, positive qualities, absolutely nothing positive. They are in terrible shape. Reproof, reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. All right, so they look alive. This is what I was talking about earlier. These churches that put on the, 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 put on the greatest show, right, doesn't necessarily mean just because there's a bunch of activity um, that, uh, that it's alive. I've killed rodents and animals before. When you shoot one, they flop around. That doesn't mean they're living their best life now, okay? Uh, activity doesn't necessarily uh, clue you in as to something good that's going on there. Uh, so they were dead, but they acted like they were alive. He, they, he told them to wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Do not depart from the truth that Christ has delivered to the saints of God. Okay? And then, of course, the, the deadly consequences. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. I'm going to show up in the middle of the night like a thief and come against you. Again, I don't have to outline it there too clearly. That's not a good thing. Works, they were accused or charged with, guilty of, incomplete works. I know your works. You have a rep reputation of being alive. Again, you're dead. And he's saying they're incomplete. You need to strengthen what you knew at first and hold to the truth. Their reward, Revelation 3, 5. Clothed thus in white garments, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before His holy angels. So again, even that church, with as messed up as it is, there's still hope for that church. The church at Philadelphia, we have two more and we're going to close. The positive qualities, you have very little power, very little influence, yet you've kept my word. You have not de denied my name. You have kept my word about being patient and enduring in these times. Reproof, absolutely none. Discipline and deadly consequences, absolutely none. Works, again, kept his word, not denied his name. And he says, uh, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Look, when, God's, when God opens a door, when His favor shines upon you, and it's eternal favor, nothing can close that door. And that's what He's telling this church. Their reward, He says, I will make Him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall He go out of it. I will write on Him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. So he's going to write his own name upon them. Really cool uh, pictures of 
our identity in Christ and the intimacy that we're going to have in eternity as we are given a new name. And then finally, the church at Laodicea. There's absolutely nothing positive listed about Laodicea. Uh, God expects, again, zealous repentance from them. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. You, are, you say you are rich. You say I have prospered and have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And of course, the result is I will spit you out of my mouth. And the, the, the deal is this, you know, um, he, if he has no purpose, if you do not align with his purpose, with his word, he will have no use for that particular church. Revelation uh, 3, 15, and 16 speaks of their works. Again, neither cold nor hot. He has no use for them. And their reward, the hope that still remains for this church at Ephesus, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. Another reference to ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So, folks, here's the deal. Because Christ is in the midst of the lampstand, because Christ is active in His church even today, in the midst of this church, all of these promises apply to us as well if we truly belong to Christ. Um, if you're like me, you're both challenged and encouraged by the warnings and the rewards of those who are willing to lay down everything for His sake, those who Christ calls the overcomers. I wonder today if Christ Himself were to write another epistle to the church, uh, to Bright Star Bible Church at, at Glenpool or at Jinx, what would Christ say in His letter to this church? And even more so, given everything that we've discussed today, if Christ were to write a letter, a personalized letter to you about your life, about the way you conduct yourself in this time that we have, in this short time that we have, what would be the warnings that He would give you? What would be the areas of your life that you needed to submit to Him? Would there be areas in which you've departed from the truth and you need to return to the truth of God's Word and get back to the truth of God's Word uh, wholeheartedly, the whole counsel of God? Would He commend you? Would there be areas in your life in which you would need to repent? What would it say? if he wrote you a letter. Perhaps today as we leave later and we go out this week into our own mission field, maybe that should be the question we ask ourselves as we seek to apply this truth to our lives. Lord, what would be in my personalized letter from you? What would it say? And what would I need to do in my life to surrender and submit to you more in order that my life might be something as the church at Smyrna, that sweet smelling aroma that their lives were as they poured themselves out for the glory of Christ and the gospel. Amen.